Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. So welcome to this episode of the Insider Outsider podcast. My co-founder, Bill Proudman, and I have as a guest, Susan Smith-Winchester, who is the Chief HR Officer at Applied Materials, previously in the same role at Rockwell Automation, and before that was a VP of HR at the Kellogg Company, and we've had the, the joy and the privilege of partnering with you from all three of those companies for this important work in DNI. So we're looking forward to just hearing what wisdom you want to share for others and what's worked in uh, partnering with us. Great. So, Thank you. Welcome. Nice to be here. Uh, Bill and Susan, you have partnered uh, across three different organizations over many years. So I'm going to let Bill lead in interviewing this process, and I'll jump in occasionally. Bill, why don't you start us off? What, how would you want to frame up? Um, well, Susan, I know, you know, the thing I love about the work that we've had the privilege of doing with courageous leaders like you is that it's been a journey, and it continues. 15 or I don't know how many years it is. I've lost count. And um, I feel like I've learned as much from my clients and you as you've learned from us, and we're constantly sort of innovating together. How would you, to start us off, how would you sort of um, talk about what what is key for you as a HR professional that has made really good progress in a number of companies around this topic? What do you know now maybe that you didn't know fully back then? Well, you know, I would say that having been an HR professional now for 33 years, which which seems shocking to me, um, I, I feel like I've been on the diversity and inclusion journey for many years. And I think one of the greatest advantages of having worked so many years in the profession is having had the opportunity for um, the earlier part of my career to try a lot of what I would describe as the traditional approaches related to diversity and inclusion. And so I got to the point, and I'll talk more about what I'm what I mean in terms of traditional approaches in a minute, but I kind of got to the point where I thought, you know, I think what we're doing is not only not helping, but I felt like it was actually making things worse. And not because the companies that I've worked for weren't trying or didn't care. That wasn't it at all. It just felt like we were going down the wrong path. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, I can remember working in uh, one of the organizations I worked in. And, you know, we all wanted to create a more diverse and inclusive company, a more diverse and inclusive team. And but we couldn't figure it out. Why, why didn't we have more diversity? So, you know, good HR person that I am, I went and did all the analysis trying to figure out the silver bullet answer of if we only do this, this will make the difference. Uh, and so it was things like analyzing every single promotion in this business that had happened over a year to try to understand who were the candidates, who got selected, were there patterns and themes around why certain people were getting selected and why certain people weren't? The results were that we uh, saw that women were only getting to a certain level in the organization, and then it was pretty much male at you know towards the top. And from an underrepresented minority standpoint, they were getting to the level below the women. You know, so you know, here I am thinking, well, I'm, I'm going to figure out why. And um, Unfortunately, despite all the analysis, despite looking at all the facts and the data and the details, there was no clear explanation for what was going on. And um, it was really frustrating because I had a wonderful boss at the time who said to me, basically, look, you know, Susan, just tell us what to do differently. Tell us what to bake for the bake sale and we will do it. You know, so this was an amazing white American male who was deeply passionate about trying to move the needle. But one of the reasons why I think it wasn't 
happening was I felt like I was carrying the load and responsibility on my shoulders to figure out what to tell my business leaders to do differently. And so it was a very frustrating place to be. The other thing I started to notice was the more work the company was doing. So some of the traditional things, uh, the company had an executive diversity council. Uh, The company had a very in-depth mentoring program, uh, almost like a matching program between mentors and mentees. A lot of money that was spent on that to try to accelerate the career paths of individuals in the mentor program. Um, But you know, and we had employee resource groups. We had all the employee resource groups. So it wasn't that we weren't spending money as a company in, in these areas. But what it appeared to me was happening was that the different groups, you know, women, African-American, Hispanic, LGBT, you know, all the groups were over here. And the white male leaders primarily, actually, in that case, it was all white men from different countries, but all Caucasian uh, origin, uh, were all over here on, on the other side. and there was frustration with the the different groups. Like, why aren't things changing? Why isn't there equity? Why isn't there more inclusion? And over here, my white male leader is thinking, what am I doing wrong? I feel like I'm being judged for something. and I don't understand it. And so while we were trying to create more diversity and inclusion, it seemed to me we were actually creating more divisiveness. And I felt like this energy divide was growing and I felt like it was really unproductive. Um, You know, from a mentoring standpoint, again, the company was spending a lot of money in a really cool program. I went through it, but it wasn't changing the career trajectory of anybody. Nothing nothing was really changing aside from people feeling, um, you know, really good about the experience. And it seemed like all the different groups were trying to push change uphill and nothing was happening, which is part of the frustration uh, of the energy. And in the middle of all this, here I am, a white woman working in a group of all white men. And I was completely unconscious to my, my my desire to try to be one of the guys. And I had this need, you know, which I think is kind of normal to be a to be viewed as a valued member of the team, uh, to be viewed as somebody who is contributing to the business objectives. In my very first meeting, uh, you know, it was a four-hour meeting with this team. The executives were going through their updates. And at the end of the meeting, the president said, any more updates? And I said, yes, I, I have an important, I have important things to share with you from HR. And one of my male colleagues stood up. He looked directly at me. He slammed his notebook shut and he walked out of the room (laughs) and it was horrible. I felt, I mean, I I went home that night and cried. I thought, you know, I need to put my resume together. And, you know, so for the next several months, you know, I'm trying to prove myself to this new team. I'm trying to solve these issues related to diversity and inclusion. I'm feeling like a total outsider on this journey and am completely unconscious to how hard I'm trying to fit into or in other words, assimilate into the insider group. And frankly, it was impossible. I am not a male. I am never going to be one of the guys. And yet I twisted myself. I spent a lot of extra energy uh, capacity trying to be perceived as as one of the guys, you know, uh, learning how to play golf. Yeah. And frankly, Bill, you know, I do not like golf. Yeah. Um, drinking, you know, trying to keep up from the drinking standpoint when we were in social events. You know, all this energy was all kind of combusting together. And I got really frustrated with all the the, the paths that I felt were, were not working. And, you know, so I think that the journey of my own leadership in the world of being an HR professional and trying to help enable my business leaders and create a more diverse, inclusive culture is that for many years, I felt like I was spinning and wasn't making any difference. And Susan, I really, I appreciate the long response to that and the couple of stories that you told, because it really embodies for me the fact that you've been on a journey with a number of colleagues over years and now decades in different companies. And so can you point to in that journey, on that path, were there a couple of pivotal experiences where all of a sudden it shifted for you? It's like, oh, wow. I don't have it all figured out, but we definitely now this needs to happen. Can you share one or two of those? Sure, I'll share, I'll share two. 
One was, you know, sort of a building frustration with what was happening. And when I was at Kellogg's, Kellogg had hired a new, uh, I think her title was Associate Director of Diversity and Inclusion, Joan Bucciagrossi. And uh, she was super creative, super innovative. And I was trying to figure out something to do with this leadership team because they really wanted to drive change. And Joan said, you know, and I don't remember the exact conversation, but I think we need to bring Bill Proudman in to talk to this team. And I had built a, a really good relationship with her. I trusted her. And so I remember inviting you in for four hours to meet with this leadership group that I was a part of. And you did what you do. And I remember that after you spent four hours with that leadership team, one of the leaders, um, actually a British man, came up to me and he said, you know, Susan, I got more in those four hours on diversity and inclusion than I have in 10 years. And it was like, oh my gosh, I think we finally figured out a path that is not only a positive, productive path, but a path that I think could create some real results and outcomes. So that was that was maybe one major turning point was meeting you and seeing the impact it had on that leadership team. But, but I, you know, I, I wasn't <laughs> expecting that you were going to sing my praises are praises, but it uh, feels <laughs> nice. But Drill down a little bit more. What specifically did you notice happening that, for whatever reason, hadn't happened? I know, you know, we're really good at what we do, but you know, yep. we're, we don't walk on water. And it's, but what, what, what was, what was different at a conceptual, at a, at a, a meta level, a bigger level? Yeah, I, I think um, first of all, it was a very non-judgmental experience, and I think so many of the traditional diversity programs. Um, have an unintended impact on leaders from the insider group that they feel that they're being judged. You know, if you guys would just stop doing this, then we'd have a more diverse culture. And the approach that you take is a very non-judgmental place. That was one piece of it. I think the other piece of it was this, this insight that you discovered that you teach in an extremely effective way in that we, when we think about diversity and inclusion, we always think about all these groups that I mentioned earlier, the women, African-American, Hispanic, everybody else. We never think about white men as being members of a group. And so that concept, which now seems so obvious, but was so not obvious then, was the realization that men, white men, don't really think of themselves as being in a group. They think of themselves as being individuals and that they've had their own challenges and obstacles throughout their career that they've overcome. Uh, largely in part of their ability to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and overcome the difficulties. And so they are, they think of themselves as individuals, but the reality is that they are individuals and they're also members of a group called the insider group. And the, the, the concept of insider group and understanding that if you're a member of the insider group, you automatically have access to power and privilege that is not automatically extended to those in the outsider groups. Um, the way you taught that was it was so effective. And it, it's it's like, you know, you have those moments in your career where you have this major mindset shift where it's like, oh, my gosh, I, it's like and you describe it this way, that the men are like fish in the water. They don't realize they're swimming around in the water and the rest of us are not swimming around in that water. And then understanding that it's not it's not about judging the privilege or or, you know, giving it a negative name. It's about using that privilege in honorable ways to mm -hmm. shift to shift the systemic barriers in the culture, which is another piece of the insight is understanding that up until that point, we were trying to shift the culture with the outsider groups leading it. Yeah. And you can't fully shift a culture and systemically change how we do everything. This isn't just about how HR recruits people. This is how we run meetings. This is how we talk. This is how we find people to be project leads. This is everything. And so that insight of going, okay, this is really interesting. I never thought about being in a group. And so what does that mean in terms of my leadership relative to leveraging my privilege honorably? And I think those two things, the non-judgmental experience and that insight around the, the men being a member of a group and what that meant to be in an insider versus an outsider was like opening the door to being able to do the real work. Yeah. Oh, well, and, and thanks for that. So another question that comes up for me, Susan, really is, is I ask you to sort of focus a little bit on yourself. I, one of the things that I've really appreciated about you over the years is I've heard you publicly 
you know, when you introduce yourself and you talk about your own identities, you talk about yourself not just as a woman in a man's world, but also as a white woman. And I know that for a lot of white women, particularly in the HR field, which are disproportionately still, I think, more white women than other groups or more women in particular, mm-hmm. um, I've watched you do that with ease. And I've also seen you use the word power and privilege in an environment long before that got even acceptable or popular. Um, how, what's it been like for you in your own journey as a woman, a white woman in this role that you're in? And what's been some of the learning for you um, that has been significant, which has helped you not just be a better HR leader, but a better person in general? Oh, wow, that's you're a really big good question. To start with. What's that? What? And you're a pretty good person to start with. This is oh, about okay. Your, well, thank you. That's nice. <laughs> I appreciate that. So, um, let's see how do I don't even know where to start with this answer. I think part of it was um, realizing that I, I can't alone change a culture. I have to do it in partnership. I have to understand the dynamic of, of allies and in, in white men as allies. And the realization that I didn't have to try to be one of the guys, that was a really kind of major insight I had along my own journey. And that it wasn't my job to solve it. It needed to be solved in partnership. Uh, what I did begin to realize is that my role is to be a guide. And uh, I think that the experiences of all the things that didn't work in the past uh, was in some respect fuel to conviction, to influencing leaders to come along the journey with me. And so I, I think that the the experiences of what didn't work enabled me to help bring people along in terms of looking at what does work. You know, so when I think about my own experience, I remember my very first lab and, um, you know, one of the experiences that I had was to get a lot of insight about how African-American Black women in particular um, you know, the relationship that we have with one another, white women and African-American and black women. And I never really thought a lot about it, to tell you the truth. Up until that point, I hadn't really thought a lot about my race. Um, you know, although I did grow up in a family where my mom and dad were both very actively involved in civil rights. And my mom started a nonprofit organization in our hometown called Bridges to um cultural understanding with a woman, an African-American woman that she knew uh, through the churches. And, but I didn't really think much about my race until my very first lab. And one of the opportunities that we had to do in that lab was to really ask each other different questions that we typically would never ask relative to, you know, just sort of unspoken questions that we have about one another. You know, what, what, what does one group, what do men think about women? What do women think about men? And I remember that I had an opportunity to call a question and to bring a group of uh, women, African-American women, Black women that were in the room into a dialogue. Because one of the questions that was asked from their group to the white women's group was, why are white women always colluding with white men? Mm. And I remember being really... um, it really bothered me that that, you know, that what are you talking about? I remember thinking, what the heck is that about? What do you mean colluding? And what in, what entailed, what happened as a result of that question was a very powerful um, discussion about um, there's no, there wasn't trust between the African-American black women with white women. And especially, you know, I think about my role as an HR leader, I'm thinking I'm building trusting relationships with everybody. Well, that that was not the case. And so I had an opportunity to get insight about the perception that, you know, that white women are married to white men, white women have white sons. And so that if we had to take a side, so to speak, in a situation between a white male manager and possibly an African-American uh, in this case, it was women that were asking that the white woman HR person was always going to side with the white man. In other words, that, that there was not going to be an opportunity to look at the situation objectively. And I remember it was really, you know, I remember feeling uncomfortable and awkward and, and judged and, you know, all these emotions coming up. We had a great, you know, you facilitated extremely effectively. We had really good dialogue. And, but I remember thinking, well, I don't really know, am I doing anything that's creating that perception? So I remember the next day, 
One of my colleagues from the company at the time, a white male colleague, uh, stood up in the lab and said something that I thought, oh my God, that's so stupid. (laughs) I don't even remember what he said. I just remember feeling embarrassed for what he had just said. And so in the moment I stood up, I said, well, you know what so-and-so really meant was this. And then I looked at the African-American women in the group. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what you're talking about. I'm doing everything I can to protect that white male who just said something that was stupid. And I'll never forget the the feeling of um, uh, self-discovery about my unconscious incompetence around understanding my my behaviors in relationship to the white men that I was working with and the unintended impact it was having on my African-American and Black uh, women colleagues. And so that was, you know, you talked about me differentiating myself as a white woman. Absolutely. You know, that that sort of first That's lesson right. of insight was significant. Mm. How, did, how did that change your continued partnerships across difference? Because I'm yet, you sound like that was a massive insight and it's a great modeling sharing that story. It's a great story. Yeah, I, I think it was the insight of understanding how to be more conscious about things that I'm doing in relationship to my relationships with people in the workplace. So being much more intentional about um, actions that could be perceived as um, taking sides or being influenced by one group or another. And I actually think this is a really good lesson for all HR leaders because it's not uncommon where employees generally perceive HR as always going to take the manager's position. In other words, we become the agents of management. And I am always thinking about the role of HR is to think about it like a three-legged stool. We need to make sure we are employee advocates, manager advocates, and company advocate. And we have to balance that. And so I think the the way I've gone forward from that, that really aha moment is really trying to practice objectivity. Um, balance and uh, and keeping that in mind that 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 insight and that experience that date has has never left. Yeah, and Susan, I think one of the things that I've been of many things that I've been really struck by over the years of working with you and the people in your organization in HR is the way in which your organizations have approached this topic so very different from other typical uh, HR organizations. And this is not about denigrating. HR professionals are incredibly uh, talented, gifted, uh, critical people in every organization. But I've noticed that lots of times one of the limitations for HR is they have a stigma that they may not have created, but it certainly is in there that they are the compliance police and that they're about, you know, it's about what the rules are. And I've watched you and people that you work with in in the three companies that I've worked with you on be able to do an incredible mixture of, yeah, well, that's certainly an important piece about what are the rules in the workplace and, you know, there are things we can and can't do. But also I've seen you and others really model the notion as an internal consultant, an internal facilitator, a bridge builder, uh, a dialogue starter. Um, And I think for me, that translates into what I always say with leaders when I'm talking with them is that they come into this work thinking they want to, they want to have the question they ask is always around a doing question. What do I do? And what I've seen you do is in the answering that, it's about how do I be? And the stories that you just told were about how you show up in your own journey, in your own self-discovery, your self-awareness, all the emotional intelligence uh, work that over the years, that that is then combined with the doing piece. And that both of those together, you can't do one without the other. And oftentimes I see particularly HR professionals really over-index on the doing part. You know, what we're going to do to fix this along with leaders. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I I think, again, you know, business leaders tend to go to, you know, HR, you need to fix diversity. I think that's a natural tendency to just think about diversity inclusion as HR's work and, you know, bring me more diverse candidates, um, provide the right training, et cetera. But I think that the perspective I try to bring is that this is, we have to think about this from a holistic systemic standpoint. And that while HR has a role and responsibility, compliance being a component of that, um, and it's different globally as well, you know, so we're just, we're, you know, always thinking about global issues uh, as a part of this, but that the work is much different than what most business leaders believe it to be. And I think what a lot of HR people believe it to be. 
And, and what I used to believe it to be, which was HR just needs to do a better job of making sure the practices have eliminated bias. Okay, well, how do you do that without understanding how bias shows up? And how do you understand that related to insider-outsider group dynamics? And so I think the, the, um, the opportunity that we had at Rockwell was an incredible opportunity to experiment with a completely different way of thinking about this work. And as you recall, what we started was, you know, I, I talked to the executives about that this isn't about a diversity and inclusion strategy. This is about a talent strategy, and this is about financial performance, and that we're going to go down the path of building a talent strategy which says we cannot just only be interesting and alluring to one group of talent. We have to figure out how to be much more interesting and um, attractive to uh, all great talent, which means a diverse and you know diversity is, is is a key requirement. And I think the other part of the equation that often gets misunderstood, not only by business leaders, but HR as well, is thinking if we just solve the recruiting end of this, then we will fix a more diverse company. But what we started to look at at Rockwell was the data, not only in terms of what diversity were we bringing in, but what was the exit rate of people leaving? And so it became very clear to me we had to switch the conversation from diversity and inclusion to inclusion, which will create more diversity. In other words, this is a talent strategy that's predicated on a platform of inclusivity for everybody, right? So, so many of these programs are all about just the, the different groups we talked about. The approach I took was if we create a more inclusive culture, that's going to be good for everybody. Because I guarantee you that there are members of the dominant group, the insider group, who don't necessarily like some of the practices that have been traditionally held by that group. You know, so I, I had this, um, I guess, conviction around recognizing that for HR, my role isn't just about fixing HR. It's about influencing leaders to be open to doing meaningful and substantive work. And the way I think about you and your organization is that when when our team started to commit to really take the time, you know, all the leaders complained, oh, what do you mean? Three and a half days for a, a lab? That's ridiculous. I can't give up that much time. And I'd say, well, that's the time on the front end. Think about all the time we're wasting on the back end because we're not doing the right program. We're losing all these people. We're spending all this money. If we just spend time on the front end, I guarantee you we will accelerate the outcomes. And so that I think that the, the, the shift here from you know compliance mindset is that this is about a journey. This is about partnership and allyship. And this is about looking at every single thing we do from a cultural standpoint. And there's a piece related to compliance, but it's a small, you know, it's a small piece. It's important. I don't want to underestimate the, its, its importance, but I'd much rather focus on what are we doing in terms of the commitment of the leaders to come along this journey and being willing to look at this differently. And I'll give you one final comment. I know because I'm talking too long is uh, I remember one executive coming to me when I had said, you know, look, I need you to come with me for three and a half days. It's like, yeah, you know, I don't usually do corporate things. I said, excellent. This is not a corporate thing. This is a talent thing. And I know you care about talent. And, you know, so it's being comfortable that I don't have all the answers. I'm in a totally different company now than Rockwell. I'm at Applied Materials, which is a very different semiconductor industry, Silicon, Silicon Valley-based company, totally different dynamic experience than what I had at Rockwell. But the beauty of the amazing Rockwell journey, which was truly amazing, and the leaders there were truly open to an innovative approach, has given me the confidence to know directionally customized along the way for a new company and a new personality of a company, but gives me the capability to say, oh yeah, HR has got a part in this, but so do you. And here's how we need to work together to solve this puzzle. Mm -hmm. I know, Michael, you probably have some questions. Can, can I ask one more before you? Yeah. I'm just, uh, Susan, I'm, I mean, there's lots of things that we can talk about and we have limited time, but would you say 33 years, 32 years you've been at what you're doing? 33. 33, right? So what's the what's the advice that you would have for the person that has not been there for 33, but they're in their first three and they're in a role, in an HR role or even a DNI role? And I, I ask this because I'm continuing to be surprised you know, with, with the murder of George Floyd this past summer. The 
the sort of rebound from that is watching so many small and large corporations really reassessing and doubling down on their work. So my question really is for the people who are new to this or just this is dawning on them, what advice? I mean, I'm sure there's lots of what's a, what's one or two pieces of advice that you would offer to them based on your learning from your 33 year journey? Well, my advice is to really challenge some of the traditional conventional approaches to the world of diversity and inclusion uh, and to really look at whether or not it's making a difference or not. And uh, I also think, you know, another piece of the advice was understanding the work that your company does. You know, again, the way I think about your organization and the experiences that you create with the people in the room and even virtually, we did this virtually with our executives and it was unbelievable, is the opening of the door to do the real work. In other words, I feel like so much energy, effort, resources, and money is being spent on superficial work. Work, you know, you can check the box. Okay, we did unconscious bias training. Check, we're done with DNI. Well, I can guarantee you, if you haven't opened the door to help people really understand what the real issues are, the money you just spent on unconscious bias training is probably not going to take you too far. And so, I guess my second piece of advice is really understand um, the White Men as Full Diversity Partners programs. And, you know, you guys are amazing in terms of your ability to work with companies and customize solutions. You've done a number of different things for the work we've done together in three companies. Um, And then from there, but, you know, again, I think about your, your world is opening the door to do the real work. Then the real work starts, which is looking at this systemically, holistically, in terms of every single thing we do. And, and, you know, you can talk about what are the steps along the journey. The very first step is making inclusion personal for leaders. My view is that until I can bring the leaders in to understand our work together, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend too much time trying to push something uphill and it's a waste of time. I go where the energy is. I, I basically, when I came in to apply, I thought I just need one or two leaders who are willing to go on this journey with me. That's what happened with us at Rockwell with John McDermott. You know, he just basically went, he was the pioneer. And then, you know, every one of the leaders followed along in terms of understanding how they could make a difference. Um, I had a belief that I could convince one or two and I was going to put my energy there. I'm not going to try to bring along the whole group. Now, what was beautiful about the Applied Materials Leadership Team is they all came along. Every single one said, I'm in which, you know, blew me away. It just confirmed I'd made a great decision to, to join the team. But that's the second thing is, is really to, to find the energy. I can guarantee you there's one executive out there who's passionate about trying to do something differently, is partnering up together to say, hey, let's understand this and, and really understand what Bill Proven's organization and Michael Welp's organization can do. And then let's see what we can do in this company to drive some change. And then so making inclusion personal, then you got to operationalize the uh, the plan. You know, there's several different pieces related to that. Um, and I mean, I, we could do a whole other session just on how do you operationalize the work coming out of the program. But those would be a couple of pieces of my advice. Mm-hmm. And to, to, be, to be confident. I, I think that, again, as you pointed out, I think sometimes there's trepidation to go down a different path. Uh, to even talk about white men, you know, I remember, you know, at one of the companies, the question was, well, can we even call ourselves white men? Well, yeah, it's okay. You know, I was like, you know, we're not going to get sued for that. And, um, you know, so being willing to, to, to be a leader, frankly, rather than holding back and um, standing behind the the curtain. Awesome wisdom. And I, I, I'm really curious about this piece you said, you know, so, so imagine other other people in your role listening to this who have are using us for four day caucuses, summits, um, mixed race gender sessions, but they're not necessarily thinking uh, or have the plan or the structure for the real work back at how do you or as you work look across these three organizations you've partnered with us, how have you structured um, taken the alumni from our sessions? and really leverage them to create culture change. I know and there's something called inclusion change teams at Rockwell. You have different different things, probably work to different places, but what would you share as suggestions or thoughts around this real work structure, operationalizing, operationalizing the plan, any yeah, insights? I think there are a couple of key steps. And again, it's gonna be different. And what I loved about the work at Rockwell was that as each leader 
came into the process, each leader did it differently. But there are a couple of key things that were done that were consistent. Uh, one was, you know, getting leaders to experience your labs, which you just mentioned. From there, a couple of the other key pieces are, you know, working with each leader to really understand their data and, you know, the, to educate them on, on you know, the, the, the details around the data. And, and that can look a lot of different ways, but really understanding what's happening in your organization, what's been happening over time. You know, what kind of diversity have you been bringing in and what's been leaving? What's the engagement score uh, of different groups, the inclusion scores, you know, all these different data points to really understand. And then, you know, there's a process that you can go through, which is a focus group process, bringing together people from different groups and asking the same questions. What's it like to work here? What do you really love? What do you not love? And of course, you start to see different themes come out of those different groups and all the different focus groups. And then, you know, once leaders have been through the White Men and Full Diversity Partners Program, bringing together some of the leaders to get a readout of the focus group insights, the synthesis, and then really starting to think about, okay, what are we going to do with what we're hearing in terms of what we think some of the systemic barriers are? You know, one example um, at, uh, at Rockwell was a barrier was, was around women, engineers in the field and isolation. That was a major barrier. And so what was done was we formed an inclusion change team to take a look at the different barriers that came out of the focus group data. And the change team was led by a leader from the insider group. It was a white male leader. And that team convened and talked about how are we going to start breaking down these barriers? And so it's that partnership. It was absolutely a partnership of looking at data, looking at the themes, and then determining the systemic barriers, and then putting a plan in place to, to drive those out. And then I think the other key enabler, I think there's two other key enablers, is really understanding how to use data to help to help convince leaders to, to take action. You know, one of the things I love about the executives I've had a chance to partner with is that commitment to data and understanding where something's red versus green and what do we need to do to turn the reds into greens, giving really specific data. I learned that we were using a lot of percentages, which, you know, percentages are great, but I translated it into raw data, into raw numbers. You know, at this level, you know, what's our real data? And then from there, building out action plans. You know, and this was the beauty of the work that was done at Rockwell was each of the leadership teams that was doing this work started to create their own actions. And what we did is we convened, we, you know, brought a lot of those actions together, shared them across the different parts of the organization, and it started to get this huge lift on the journey of creativity around how we're going to break down these barriers. And then constantly evolving and looking for, you know, you, you reach different plateaus on the journey. The Rockwell journey was a 10-year journey, which, by the way, the company tripled market cap during that period. They won the Catalyst Award. I mean, it was a, a, an amazing journey of leadership. And um, But always looking for how do we evolve from one plateau to the next and evolving and looking at, okay, this is what's worked. This is what we need to do differently. What eventually evolved at Rockwell, which was just amazing, was the executive team meeting as a team to talk about our role in leading this work, talk about how we're going to support one another in the decisions that we were making. And Bill, you remember, that was really powerful work, but it, it you know, it took time. Yeah. And and, you know, I've also found that certain diversity topics are easier than others. So we, you know, there's a lot of heavy emphasis on gender early on. And over time, we were able to evolve as we got more understanding around becoming more um, consciously incompetent, working towards conscious competence uh, and eventually, uh, you know, unconscious competence. Uh, you know, it's, it's a journey, right? Uh, was the realization that we really needed to get deeper on race and issues related to race. But that took some time. Uh, you know, yeah, I think so, one of the again another thing I've been impressed with the Rockwell, you and your colleagues there, is the willingness to sit with the paradox of urgency and patience, rather yes. than urgency trumps everything, and all we're going to do is we got to get do this tomorrow. And so over that ten years, I, I think one of the things, I, first of all, I love the fact that that culture basically adopted a mindset that was universal that one size is not going to fit all. And there are some structures that have applicability across different business units, but we're going to give the organic nature of the composition of these different business units 
the ability to innovate. And then if you can speak to the things I loved about what you, one of the other practices that every year you brought together a group of your change agents. It was a crazy yes. summit. It started with that evolved where you actually yeah. you had a best practices summit and you started to share best practices and ideas just generated from there. Yeah, well, that was our summit for courageous engagement and inclusion leaders. And I remember it start, we started with maybe, I think, uh, with Perry Stuckey, uh, maybe 35 leaders, I think, something like that, 40 leaders yeah. in the first session to eventually hundreds of leaders coming together that were working on this work. And it really is a statement of the executive team and the CEO, uh, both Keith Nosbush and Blake Moret, as well as brilliant visionary Joan Bucciagrossi, Michelle Mathai, who has uh, continued the work there. And then in partnership with all the leaders in HR, it was absolutely a, an enterprise-wide um, journey and uh, just a remarkable path. And now the opportunity at Applied is to create a different path, but leveraging some of the lessons learned and the energy, and you've seen it too, Bill, related to what we've been doing at, at, at Applied is you know, just this huge opportunity and commitment from our CEO, Gary Dickerson, and the executive team. And uh, I'm just jazzed about where we're going to go because we're on a different creative path. And and uh, now it's all virtual. Everything's remote. So we, we have a whole new opportunity right. to figure out how to influence um, a global technology company. So it, it sounds like, Susan, the inclusion change teams was a structure that was used a fair amount across Rockwell. Is there any secrets to that in terms of how you set it up so that business leaders are really driving it, how often they met or how many people or how many issues they took on? What, yeah, what did you was, learn? And is that something? Yeah. Yeah. There were a couple of key things. One, uh, you know, sort of criteria or parameters, if you will, guidelines led by a leader from the insider group. Uh, HR was on the team, but not leading the team. I think the majority of members were from insider group. And then again, kind of following the process of the focus groups, synthesizing the results, looking for the systemic barriers, and then building action plans uh, was key. Each group decided what they wanted to take on. And one of the organizations, uh, you know, they went about looking at the, the systemic barriers very differently than another group did, but being flexible to allow the diversity and the diversity and inclusion work. Um, so that, that it was pretty straightforward. And um but there was absolutely a consistent approach to how we did it. Mm-hmm. And those groups often met every few weeks or so? And- no, I think it was different cadence for different groups. You know, and again, you know, Joan in the early days and then Michelle later were really facilitating and guiding that process and those that, those uh, efforts. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, Joan Buzagorsi and Michelle uh, after are great examples of internal consultants who basically supported the work was led and sort of based in the business unit by the leader, which is different than a lot of other approaches where everybody pivots to HR, the DEI office and say, now what? And I love the way in which that partnership got dramatically and drastically reframed. And it was an, it's an internal consultant. They were support systems, but they had no budget. So the budget came from the business unit. If I remember this, you can correct me if I'm missing that's exactly and, uh, right. And then, then the business owned the outcome as opposed to you know, them looking back to you saying, now what? Now what? That didn't work. Now yep. what? Yep. And that's exactly the model we're, we're implementing at Applied. Pam Sherman is our senior director of the culture of inclusion work. Uh, we partner with a woman named Valois Bowers, who is my former, she, I, she and I worked together at Kellogg. She was the chief diversity officer there and as well as a number of companies. Um, she's an external consultant that we work with on a fairly regular basis, and that consultant model is the continuation. And again, to your point, you know, one of the biggest concerns I think HR has is, you know, well, how am I going to fund it? My view is if you provide a solution to the business that's going to solve a problem for them, they're going to fund it. And, you know, so finding great talent, keeping great talent is a business issue. It's not a, it's not an, a, I mean, HR, obviously it's our issue is people, but you know, you're right. I mean, the 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 reality is is that the if the if it's super important for the company, generally there's a way to figure out how to get it funded. If it's not, there's no energy. You don't go there. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the initiatives have sort of um, uh, flattened out in terms of the impact because the fundamental core 
shifting of leaders' mindsets around making inclusion personal the way that you do is missing. That's my belief why so many programs are not driving the results that companies want to see. Yeah. I just mm-hmm. today read a report from our chief technology officer sent it to me uh, from McKinsey talking about the slow progress in the, the metrics related to diversity and inclusion. And I just shake my head and think, well, it's because we're missed. There were so many companies and me for so long, we're missing that front end piece of, of really understanding how to make inclusion personal for the executives so that they will understand it's their responsibility and, and opportunity to, to partner as allies in the work and the changes. And I really, um, Susan, something you just said really goes to sort of the, I think the last question I'll ask, Michael, you might have another one, which is, um, and I've, I've loved I've loved how you've sort of painted the frame and obviously there's much more we could go into in depth. We're just sort of touching on the edge. I think for the person listening in, they might say, wow, this sounds just like, you know, a, a romantic success novel story, you know, this like fairyland, uh, fairy book. <laughs> And so the question I have for you, what's keeping you up at night right now around the intersection of equity and inclusion issues related to leadership and talent and other things that you're charged with? Well, I would say that companies have this unique opportunity, especially with everything going on in our own country right now. And I'm not going to make any political statements, but employees are looking more and more to their companies and to their CEOs, to their executives, to provide a perspective on what's happening in the society. And so I wouldn't say that it keeps me up at night, but I'm constantly thinking about how do we make sure we have a relationship with our employees uh, so that they understand how we feel about topics related to diversity, inclusion, and equity. Uh, so they understand that our intent is to create a company culture that is a culture of safety for people. And, you know, thinking about historically, you know, that we, we I don't, when I think back about 20 years ago in my career, I don't remember looking to my company to provide a sense of security and safety related to global societal issues happening around the world. But now there's this whole new dynamic where, Employees expect their companies to be leaders on important topics, and I'm really proud of Applied in our in our ability to do that. But it's it, to me, I think the opportunity is how do I make sure employees know from the standpoint of the company on a proactive basis, not just waiting for the next crisis, not just waiting to be responsive in the moment of something negative happening, but building an ongoing relationship with our employees and our leaders so that people understand and have a sense of trust that they're working in a company that stands for values that matter to them. And so I think the challenge, you know, to your point about what keeps me up is how do we do that in a way that our employees see how authentic it is so that they, they believe that, that they're at a place that stands for things that matter, respect, integrity, uh, equity, inclusion, and diversity. So that, that's what I've been thinking a lot about in partnership with some of the leaders that applied. Thank you. That's awesome. I think, um, Susan, I'm just curious in this last year with uh, everything happening with the Black Lives Movement protests and all the, there's been calls in uh, some organizations say, we don't want you to just be inclusive. We want you to be anti-racist or fully active in, in, in that and more. Is that something you're hearing or is that something that you feel like um, addressing race and more in any different way or more intense way than you have or deeper? Or is well, it I mean, still- I, I certainly think there's a, ve- a very significant focus on racism. And again, I'm super proud of our CEO and our company because he took a very strong position stating that our company stands against racism. You know, so I absolutely think the, the volume has been turned up for us. Uh, those of us that are white, I mean, I think it's been an issue that's been turned up for a long time for our uh, African-American and black colleagues. Um, but in terms of the um, uh, the focus on it, it, you know, the intensity, absolutely. But also being very upfront and clear with our people about how much we stand against injustice, uh, racial injustice. So, I mean, for sure, I mean, this was an amazingly terrible year last year but it's just because it got so much visibility. There were all these terrible things happening long before last year that were invisible to us. You know, many of us 
uh, that are white in, in the leadership roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember one thing that was, I, I loved watching the Catalyst video that uh, Rockwell made because they named white privilege and having to lean in and understand male privilege, white privilege, and that there's a lot of companies that wouldn't even want to do that. They'd shy away from that. Yeah. And I think that's unfortunate because it's denying the reality. And I think it's why so many companies are making such slow progress is denying the reality that, that we need to talk about it. And, and that was mm-hmm. the, the beauty of the work. That's the beauty of the work that you do is making it okay to do it in a very non-judgmental way where it's not about judging privilege. It's not about that at all. It's about leveraging it for the good of all. Well, Susan, I I, I want to really thank you for um, taking this time with Michael and I. Um, I love um, the partnerships that we've been able to create with people like you. And it sort of makes my heart sing to watch work that you've done over not just years, but decades, along with other folks in the organizations that you've worked with. And it's one of those things for me that uh, with my six grandkids, it's uh, as now in the latter part of my professional life, um, what continues to motivate me about the, the, the upcoming generations uh, handing off a planet uh, in a little better shape than when we left. And we, you know, we've got, you know, big, big challenges in front of us. So thank you again for the, for the partnership. And also here's to the, to the adventure ahead. I agree. I completely feel the same way. And thanks so much for the opportunity to talk tonight. You bet. Thanks. Thanks, Susan. And uh, I, I really appreciate that a lot of people are going to be able to benefit from your learnings and, um, and our continued partnership has been awesome. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.